Hello everyone, I'm Cressida Cowell, author of How to Train Your Dragon, and I'm just popping in to tell you about my new book series, Which Way to Anywhere. It's a story about four children who discover that there are alternative worlds beyond our own, and that they can travel to them with the help of a magical map and a very special gift. Of course, this leads to epic, unexpected adventures. Which Way to Anywhere and its sequel, Which Way Round the Galaxy, are both available to buy now. Happy reading! Hello, welcome along. It's a brand new episode of the Fun Kids Science Weekly podcast, the smartest show in the history of the universe, just as well, because around here, our mission is simple. We find all the science secrets lurking around the universe. My name's Dan. Thank you for finding, following, streaming, sharing, listening to us. This week, we'll learn about something that looks Christmassy with one deadly difference. These two long, jutting teeth make them look terrifying. Also, you've got more news on a big telescope. Uh, It's the the most expensive space experiment ever made. And there are some strange changes in Antarctica, which experts say sounds alarm bells over Earth's changing climate. First off, let's catch up with one of our favourite genius friends. His name is Sir Sidney McSprocket. He tells us about loads of other geniuses that have made stuff, that have thought of stuff, that have had inventions that have changed the world. He's here every week. This week, it's all about Eugene Rimmel and James Dyson. Sir Sidney McSprocket's Great British Minds. Oh, hello. Sir Sidney McSprocket here. Oh, it's great to see you, especially as we're looking at some great British minds. Creative people who use their imagination to design, invent, and adapt the things around us. Things we use every day. Now, there have been great minds for as long as there have been human beings, and in 1851, a great exhibition was held in London to celebrate and showcase some of the very best. People such as Eugene Rimmel. Rimmel was a perfume maker who was born in France, but lived in England for most of his life. At the Great Exhibition, he created a giant fountain that sat atop of a splendid base, featuring glass cases filled with bottles of Great Exhibition Bouquet Perfume. If the stylish bottles didn't convince people to hand over their money, then ladies could try the perfume on their handkerchief by asking for a spritz from the fountain itself. Now, you might recognise Eugene Rimmel's name. Although he died in 1887, the cosmetics brand that he created, Rimmel London, is still sold around the world. You see... He didn't stop at one invention. Just like another great British mind, and one who's still inventing today, Sir James Dyson. Now, you might have heard of Dyson as a type of vacuum cleaner, and the dual cyclone is certainly the invention for which Sir James is best known. Oh, oh, hang on, let me just switch this off. Not really the time for it. Oh, that's better. But you see, Sir James's story didn't start with the cyclone. Before that, he invented something else. Something very different. I wonder if you can guess what it was. It was a wheelbarrow. Or rather, a ball barrow. 
he had noticed that wheelbarrows had a tendency to get stuck in the mud. His idea was that a ball-shaped wheel would be less likely to sink, and thus the ball barrow was born. And without the ball barrow, there might never have been his famous vacuum cleaner. He'd seen another problem, you see, and thought he might be able to figure out a fix. Traditional vacuum cleaners had a tendency to clog up and lose their suction. Now one day, Sir James had an idea that the air filters they used to spray the paint on the wall ball barrows could be used to make a bagless type of vacuum cleaner. And he didn't stop there. After all, if you can suck, then you can also blow. A few years later, Dyson launched the Airblade, a hand-drying machine which produces a single layer of cool air travelling at 400 miles per hour, faster than a jet. Dyson has also created high-powered hair dryers and even adapted his digital motor technology to make medical ventilators. As you can see, a part of what makes a great mind is the ability to be adaptive, like Sir James. Take an idea from one invention and using it for another. And it's a leaf I've taken from his book. I've got this whisk from an ice cream machine and thought it would make a tremendous propeller for some rocket shoes I've been working on. Let's give them a try. Why? Up, up and away. I'll have to catch you another time. Tatty bye. Sir Sidney McSprockett's Great British Minds. With support from the Royal Commission 1851. Find out more at funkidslive.com slash McSprocket. Time for your questions then. If there's something sciencey that you want to know about, leave it as a review for me on Apple Podcasts. Find this show there. Look up the Science Weekly. Give us five stars so I can see it. Leave your name so I can say hello. There's a little comment box at the bottom. That is where you leave your question. First up this week, Harry is in Tenerife. He wants to know, Tenerife, we're going global today, by the way. Uh, He wants to know, since the universe is so big, is there definitely another planet with life on it? Thing is, Harry, we don't really know. Problem is with Earth. It's the only planet that we know about that has all the right things for life as we know it, on it. It's the perfect distance from the sun, so we're just hot enough. We don't freeze, but we don't fry. It's got water on. It's got oxygen in it as well. The universe is so big, though, and it's always getting bigger, that there might be other planets perfect for life too. But they're so far away that we haven't found them yet. Also, think about this. The universe is 14 billion years old. We've only been able to look for life on other planets for the last 100 years or so which is a tiny slither of time in that 14 billion year window. So maybe we're just looking at the wrong time. Maybe there's no aliens around right now. Maybe they were around before. Maybe they're coming in the future. Uh, it's Maybe we've just picked the wrong time. It's very hard to know because they might be so far away that finding them would take thousands of years. Thank you for the question, Harry. This one is from Luke in Melbourne, down under in Australia. He wants to know, how do deep sea creatures uh, live without being crushed? 
Now, they've evolved over time from something tiny to something a bit bigger and bigger and bigger to the creatures that we have down there today. And they live, uh, they have to be supremely strong because where they live in the deepest parts of the ocean, it can be seven kilometers below sea level. The pressure down there is a a thousand times greater than it is at the top. The weight of all that water is squashing them down. Now, creatures that live down there, they don't have proper bones. They're made of a more bendy thing called cartilage. Also, being under that huge pressure, it can make your brain work differently. These fish have a chemical naturally in them which stops that happening. And they have gaps in their brains as well that experts think help them deal with pressure. They also don't waste time with normal eyes because it's pitch black down there, so they sense in other ways. That's how they crack on. Thank you so much for the questions, you two. If you've got something you'd like answered on the show next week, leave it as a review for me on Apple Podcasts. It's the Fun Kids Science Weekly. Now, NASA, the American space people, are going to fire a rocket at an asteroid to test how well it might defend Earth in the future. It's one of the best stories that I've seen all year. Now, Catherine Muller is from the National Space Centre here in the UK. She joins us to talk it over. Catherine, thanks for being there. Thank you for having me. Um, How many of these ideas do you think NASA and other space agencies come up with all the time to try and defend the Earth? Uh, I'm sure there are lots of different um, methods that they've thought of. You might have seen there are some films that have certain ideas about sending nuclear missiles and things up to different asteroids. But the one that they've chosen to test is something called kinetic impact, which is a really sciencey way of saying they're just going to crash a spacecraft into an asteroid and hopefully move it off course. So this is the DART mission. Uh, Just tell us more about the asteroid that they're trying to hit, how fast we need to go, how far away we're going to smash it. So the target of the mission is an asteroid called Dimorphos. Um, It's about 11 million kilometers away. So it'll take the spacecraft just under a year to get there. And it will be traveling at about 6.6 kilometers per second. So really, really fast. And hopefully that will uh, generate enough force um, to move it out the way. And this asteroid is about the size of the Colosseum in Rome. So it's going to need a lot of impact to move it. That's fairly hefty. Also, I didn't realise it would take almost a year to get there. Uh, is, Is this the quickest that we can act? Say tomorrow we find out an asteroid is heading right for us. Can we do it any quicker? I think the point of practicing this technique on the mission is so that we know if the technology works, which means that we can, if it does work, we can create another version of the DART spacecraft that we should be able to launch at a much quicker sort of notice if we do discover that something's heading towards Earth. So that's why it's good to get practice in now, just in case we do need it in the future. We've been to the moon before and left tyre tracks there. We've sent rovers to Mars. Have we ever knocked a bit of space rock off course before? We've not done this before, no. So we have sent certain spacecrafts to different asteroids and comets. So the mission Lucy is currently on its way to asteroids, but we've never actually collided with one yet intentionally. So this is a big first for Earth. Uh, What will we learn from this? What are NASA hoping to figure out? So NASA are hoping to figure out if this is a good way of changing the course of an asteroid because they think it might work, but we never know. So we're going to monitor the collision from Earth and with some instruments on board the spacecraft to see if it has changed the orbit and to see what happens with any resulting bits of rock that fly off and what sort of crater is left on the asteroid as well, just to sort of see what's going on there. 
how much do you know about the way this rocket looks? Does it look like a normal rocket that we might send to the moon or is it specially equipped to try and take things down? So the rocket that was launched was called a Falcon 9 rocket. It was the SpaceX rocket. And um, it does look sort of similar to the rockets you might have seen launching to the moon. But what's special about it is sat on top of it is the DART um, spacecraft, which will get released uh, when the rocket gets into space. And this spacecraft is about the size of the small car. And it's got two big solar panels on either side of it that are about, so it'll be about 19 meters across in total. Do all the calculations for the DART rocket need to be figured out before we send it up there? Or can we kind of drive it through space like a remote control car? So all the plans for the trajectory of the spacecraft have been decided in advance. So they know roughly where it's going. However, on board, there is a sort of navigation system. So if it ends up going the wrong direction or something, they can change it a bit like a remote control car. We see in films, small things making a big difference. Is there a worry that us smashing into an asteroid might affect other things in the universe. So I don't think there's too much to worry about for this one. Um, scientists are very confident that this collision um, will not affect Earth or the universe around us um, because it's only a small asteroid and it's not planning on altering its course too much. So either the asteroid itself nor any debris that comes from the collision are expected to head towards Earth. So we should be OK and so should the rest of the universe. Fantastic. Now, uh, what's going on at the National Space Centre at the moment? What can you tell us about? It's one of my favourite places in the country. So at the National Space Centre, we're really excited about this launch. We like to keep on top of all the launches that we've got going on. Um, in December, um, the James Webb Space Telescope is being launched, and that's something we're really excited about. So just keeping an eye on all the things that are going up into space so we can learn a lot more and communicate it with the public. Always watching. Catherine Muller from the National Space Centre. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you so much. Hello, everyone. I'm Cressida Cowell, author of How to Train Your Dragon, and I'm just popping in to tell you about my new book series, Which Way to Anywhere. It's a story about four children who discover that there are alternative worlds beyond our own and that they can travel to them with the help of a magical map and a very special gift. Of course, this leads to epic, unexpected adventures. Which Way to Anywhere and its sequel, Which Way Round the Galaxy, are both available to buy now. Happy reading. It's time for this week's Dangerous Dan, where we look at some of the most mean and cruel and deadly things in the world. This week, it's something a little bit Christmassy. It's like a reindeer, but looks far meaner. The water deer are known by a much scarier name. They're called the vampire deer. They get that name from two large fangs that grow either side of their mouth. They look a bit like tusks. These two long jutting teeth make them look terrifying. Now, unlike a lot of deer, they have no antlers. Other than that, they look exactly the same, except for the fangs that give them their name. You find them mainly in South Korea. They've kind of moved into some parts of Britain. They're in France as well. Now, thankfully, they're not that dangerous to us humans. Instead, they use these vicious, sharp fangs to get smaller prey. But still, their name, the vampire deer... For that alone, it goes on our Dangerous Dan list. It's time to catch up with our favourite superhero on the show now. Her name is Karina. She goes by her alter ego, K-Mystery. K-Mystery is a genius scientist. This week, uh, we're learning all about agriculture and climate change. Karina is finding out how smart new ways of farming are helping to tackle the challenges of a growing population and climate change. 
Chemistry. Chemistry and climate. Every day, over 800 million people go to bed hungry, and with a rising global population expected, that figure is set to increase. Farming is under pressure to change, but change in a way that doesn't increase climate change. Wow. So many people without enough food. How do you solve a problem like that? And what's climate change got to do with it? Hi, Karina. Lots of questions there. Fortunately, your alter ego chemistry superhero has more than a few answers. Oh, hey, chemistry. Not sure if farms have much to do with chemistry. You're kidding, right? Everything has chemistry at its core, and farming's no different. And problems relating to climate change, well, they need chemistry to find solutions. Come on, I'll show you. In 1960, one hectare of land fed on average two people. By 2050, when the global population is set to exceed 9 billion, that same amount of land will have to feed more than six people. But we can't feed everyone now. It's hopeless. No, it isn't. It's just a challenge. Over the last 50 years or so, chemical-based fertilisers have been used to help increase crop sizes, with herbicides and pesticides used to get rid of pests and weeds. But doesn't that just add to the amount of chemicals in the soil? And don't we need insects for things like pollination? Yes, but it's all a balance. Without herbicides and pesticides, it's estimated that up to 40% of the world's food wouldn't exist. Chemists are helping to develop more effective products that don't harm the environment. And interestingly, inspiration for new products come from naturally occurring compounds and by studying the way plants and insects interact naturally. Sort of copying nature? Well, nature usually has the best ideas, so yes. And it's not just the weeds and pests that are important to tackle. We need to look under our feet, too. To the soil. After all, soil's not just important to grow crops. It stores greenhouse gases and water. Well, that's where the effect on climate change comes in, right? As temperatures rise, we can expect more flooding and soil's an important flood defence. Chemists are helping us better understand soil so we can protect the soil and maintain its quality, whatever the weather. And talking of weather, biochemists are helping develop an amazing new sustainable approach to farming, which involves bringing the outside, well, inside. Come on. Welcome to the Vertical Farm. These farms take the idea of a greenhouse literally to the next level, with rows and rows of crops under cover of glass or plastic in stacked layers. A single vertical farm can grow the same amount of crops as you'd get from 10 acres of land. That's like five Olympic-sized swimming pools in just half an acre. Whoa, so you could even have them in cities? Yes, and think how many food miles that might save. No need for lorries to bring it from the countryside. And the land could be left alone to preserve biodiversity. 
It's an amazing new way to think about farming, and it's set to increase. There's over two million square meters of indoor farms now, and that's expected to rise over ten times in the next five years. And another new technology is helping farmers maximize crops cheaply and effectively. Drones! They can inspect every last inch of farmland with infrared scanners to detect pests, weeds, and even plants that need fertilizer. And we're back. Well, thanks for the insight, chemistry. No problem. Always happy to help with a chemistry challenge. Online, you'll find a cool experiment where you can see the effect of growing in a controlled climate by comparing how well seeds grow indoors and outdoors. Why not check it out? Chemistry, chemistry, and climate, with support from the Royal Society of Chemistry. Find out more and get hands-on with chemistry at funkidslive.com/chemistry. It's time for this week's science in the news. The highest temperature ever recorded in the Arctic Circle was recorded last week in Vukovarsk in Russia. It reached 38 degrees C. Quite often, most of the time, it's below freezing there. And in Antarctica, by the South Pole, it got to almost 19 degrees, which experts say sounds alarm bells over Earth's changing climate. Also, the James Webb Space Telescope has been hoisted on the rocket that will blast it into space. It weighs more than six tons. It's cost ten billion dollars. Uh, it's the the most expensive space experiment ever made, uh, and it's going to go into the solar system, go far into space. Sorry to uh, to look at the stars that shone in the universe. The very first ones, thirteen point five billion years ago. Uh, and finally, on an industrial estate just outside Didcot in England, an experiment is happening that will make temperatures hotter than the sun. They're hoping to create nuclear fusion there, so we can make our own energy. It's what happens on the sun, but they want to do it in the south of England. And that is it for this week's Fun Kids Science Weekly. Thanks so much for listening. If there's something sciencey you want answered on the show next week, you need to leave it as a review for me on Apple Podcasts. Uh, until then, make sure you listen to loads of other science stuff that we do. Loads more podcasts. They're on Apple. They're on Google, Spotify. They're on the free Fun Kids app and at funkidslive.com. And Fun Kids, we are a children's radio station from the UK. You can listen to us all around the country on your DAB digital radio and over at funkidslive.com. Hello, everyone. I'm Cressida Cowell, author of How to Train Your Dragon, and I'm just popping in to tell you about my new book series, Which Way to Anywhere. It's a story about four children who discover that there are alternative worlds beyond our own, and that they can travel to them with the help of a magical map and a very special gift. Of course, this leads to epic, unexpected adventures. Which Way to Anywhere and its sequel, Which Way Round the Galaxy, are both available to buy now. Happy reading!